Hi, friends. This is John welcoming you back to I Miss You. I have to admit, I'm struggling a bit with introducing the episodes. I get stuck in my head, you know, where that inner critic has been living the high life, all nice and cozy, probably sipping a Zevia and watching Netflix on my account, stopping me from forward movement, putting words on paper, or in this case, hacking away at the keyboard. Being honest about the struggle is helping to oil the gears, being able to name the self-criticism that comes with being vulnerable. I don't know about you, but my reaction to being vulnerable is, after I put something out there, I just want to immediately become the hibernating bear crawling into the cave for the next few months. Will this podcast be interesting? Which means, will I be interesting? Which means, will I be enough? And what exactly is enough? Enough to be accepted? To be seen? Being seen, visible, is a sticky area for me. As a kid, I was relentlessly bullied. Being seen meant being open to ridicule and violence, the deer in an open field. I was a theater kid. The open field was the stage. So doing what I love meant also feeling unsafe. As I grew older, went off to a college theater program, and then eventually started doing professional theater, that feeling of the bully sitting right there in the first row never really went away. Not to mention that the whole auditioning process is like being subjected to an ongoing state of judgment, ultimately saying, you're good enough, or you're not good enough. For anyone with trauma, this is very triggering. Now, I make my own damn art, on my own damn time, and to all of those out there that at some point told me I wasn't good enough, it's going really, really well, and you can all go and get stuffed. This week's conversation is very meaningful and rich for me. It's the type of deep, late-night conversation I came to expect in the presence of this thoughtful human. Ben and I met in Washington, D.C. in 2008 at a party of a mutual friend. But I already knew of Ben, his reputation as a sort of local anti-celebrity, someone whose social electricity had others just naturally orbiting around him, whether he invited it or not. Because of Ben's height, athleticism, and popularity, I superficially pinned him as a jock. And this is an important part of our friendship story because up until we met, jocks were to me something to be feared, to be, to get out of the way of, the school bullies. What Ben did for me through kindness and inclusion allowed for a corrective emotional experience. I was able to begin the healing process of my fear around men. There's so much in this conversation, I can't contain it within an introduction. So I'm just going to let it speak for itself. I do want to point out one thing, though, which is my reaction to Ben saying, quote unquote, we as gay men. Some of you may wonder why I chose not to react in that moment or bring up my own identification as genderqueer and non-binary in response. It's because my interpretation in that moment was that Ben was not including me in the we, per se, 
but rather the larger group that share his sociocultural location. It wasn't until I moved away from Washington, D.C. that I began identifying as non-binary and using they-them pronouns. That being said, I advocate for the rights of all people to be identified by their chosen pronouns and gender identity. And yes, I do get triggered when people refer to my assigned birth sex and believe that misgendering is deeply rooted in institutional processes of oppression, colonization, and misogyny. To all parents and educators listening, that's why it's so important to teach kids love and acceptance around the entirety of the gender spectrum. And if you know a grown adult or two who also needs some instruction, there's a ton of information out there. I'll share some of my go-tos on Instagram at I Miss You Podcast. For our listeners, this conversation contains talk of body dysphoria, mental illness, trauma, cults, and suicide. So here we are. Here we are. <laughs> um, you look great. Thanks. I feel okay. I've gained, you feel 20, okay? I've gained 20 pounds. That's probably been the hardest thing for me during COVID is just dealing with, uh, dealing with the weight gain. Cause I've been very, you know, fit and, and, uh, athletic my whole life. And then this last year, you know, I've just kind of gone off the rails. I, I stopped going to the gym. I, I didn't have the option of going to the gym for quite a number of months. And, um, yeah, it's just really fucked with my head. Do you do you feel it more or do you see it more? Both. Both. There was an article in The Atlantic recently uh, where uh, this writer was talking about how physically her body is breaking down, like her hips and her, her back. And, and um, it, I've appreciated having other people write and talk about these things that are happening in their lives because... I definitely, because of the isolation, I, I wonder sometimes, am I the only one feeling this way? I mean, uh, intellectually, I know that I'm not, but just to, when people write about it, talk about it in big public settings and other people chime in, and then you start realizing, oh, okay, yeah, th- this is a, a mass, uh, this is a thing that is happening across the globe, you know, things related to the body, um, to the mind, to our relationships, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I felt myself um, having gotten bigger since the pandemic started and I could feel it. I felt it most when I would sleep on my side <laughs> because I would feel it kind of move like down towards the bed and splay a bit. Like there's definitely, I felt like I was carrying like a, like a kangaroo or something. There's definitely some pouch situation going on there. But then I, over the winter break, I went to visit my parents and, you know, I'm a vegan and they're meat eaters. So I used it as an opportunity to kind of like reset and like be surrounded by less snacks. (laughs) It was a great opportunity. I feel like I had a bit of a reset for a month. Yeah. Good. I I have the same, (laughs) the same thing. I, I'll, I'll touch, you know, parts of my you know, my stomach and I'll just feel a plushness there that I'm not accustomed to. And uh, one, it's made me realize that like a good number of gay men that I have a body dysmorphia, maybe not so low grade. And Mm -hmm. I I never really understood that. 
how deeply that had its claws in me. Uh, because often I've used physical fitness as a way to maintain my own mental mental health because I I, I suffered from chronic depression for like 25 years. Uh, mm-hmm. Luckily, I no longer I no, no longer carry that burden. But I would use that as a way to manage my own mental health. It's just the constant endorphin rush, you know, of working out five times a week. And it's it's weird that as my mental health has improved dramatically, my physical health has gotten less so, mm-hmm. less great. And so I'm, I'm looking in the mirror and I'm seeing myself expand in ways that I, I don't know how to, how to manage because for so long, my body was a representation of my, my personal worth, not only for me, but for other people. Uh, and so to see my body change this way, it, it makes me question uh, my own worth at a time when my, my own self-worth has never been higher. So I suppose it's a good time for that to happen is whenever I'm in a mentally healthy, good place, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you're holding a lot of dichotomous things all going on at once. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's, it's funny that you, I I think too very much that um, when we start shifting or things start shifting about us, whether they be physiological or mental like those shifts, even if they, even if we think they're moving towards the right direction, if you believe in right and wrong or, or to a better direction, like we're going to see a therapist now, so we're getting well or moving in whatever right direction that, that is. So we start shifting, but then that can like surface, surface a bunch of other bullshit <laughs> that you like didn't even know was just lurking under the surface, you know? Right, right. Um. But ultimately, it's a healthy thing because until you can, you have awareness of the under, underlying motivate, motivating factors, then you really can't do anything about it. You're just going to blindly thrashing about, mm-hmm. not realizing how these things are acting on your life. It doesn't mean you're going to change it because knowing it, knowing where it's from and why is much different than actually changing it and doing something better. But it's a start. And for me, that's probably been the hardest thing over the pandemic is coming to some acceptance of this dysmorphia, um, embracing self-love and self-worth in spite of not having a major pillar of how I used to define that to being slipping away um, and being okay with it in some, in some ways, uh, figuring out, well, if you, what is your relationship with physical fitness going to be moving forward? You know, it has to be fundamentally different than what it was before. Mm-hmm. Because what it was before, while I had a great body, uh, I was mentally unhealthy. I had in, in, in a number of ways. So, yeah, it, it's, it's ultimately it's a good thing to have to deal with these questions. Mm-hmm. So um, I thank you for for doing this, for giving me some time and coming and having a chat. Yeah, sure. Um, you're the first person um, that's doing this conversation with me. Okay, great. So I'm sort of ner- I'm I'm noticing a bit of nervousness sort of pop up around it, which is funny because I don't feel nervous necessarily chatting with you 
but I guess I'm feeling a little bit nervous, just like maybe, I don't know, nervous around, is the audio going to be good enough? Is the material going to be good enough? But I think the material is definitely going to be good enough because I already feel very, very good about the conversation so far. Well, yeah. it won't be perfect. I mean, you, you're a creator. You know this, is that you experiment and you fuck up and then you experiment some more and uh, yeah. you start building on your your growing barrel of fuck ups and you let that inform something beautiful. Um, so maybe this won't be your best episode, but it's going to help you build toward having a better <laughs> product. And also there might be some control issues. You know, you want to control it to make it be a certain thing that frames in your head and you probably don't know and you haven't done enough you're still at the beginning of that creative process with the podcast. So how could you possibly control it? You don't know what it's going to be yet. So you kind of have to give up some yeah. of that. Yeah. Talk about control issues. You know, I was just going through a whole like deep dive process around control issues for me that I thought that I sort of had worked out for myself or I had done some work on before, but, but on a recent project that I was working on, those control issues like fucking popped up left and right. I was being triggered by the littlest things like, like, <laughs> like these triggers just like popping up everywhere. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on around this? And I noticed that like just contained within working on this project, it wasn't necessarily that it was like control in some sort of universal way, creative control over the entirety of the project. But it just so happened it was the perfect storm of all of these little triggers from various other projects, not even the same project I had worked on historically, like in my, in my past, just happened to show up on this one thing. So they were hitting me from all sides and I was really having to kind of like constantly have this self-talk with my with self-talk myself um to kind of talk myself down from the ledge when it came to these control issues popping up like yeah creative control over things I'm, i mean i don't know how you feel about this but i <laughs> i have a sort of creatively I really kind of want my voice in the sort of full design of things. Now, if I work with collaborators um, and there's a good sort of conversation going or there's a good camaraderie going, it feels good, it's easier for me to kind of come to the table. It's easier for me to listen and to receive information. But usually on creative projects, I have a kind of total vision. So it's hard for me to start giving up control on little things that pop up within that. You know what I mean? I mean, there are a few different things that pop up. One, I don't know where you want to take this. There's, what is, what is, if you just want to talk about control, um, which for me, it's, you know, it's about fear, it's about fear of failure, fear of judgment. Um, or, or if you want to talk about the creative process itself, um, I, and also the, the other thing is that came up is Jarman and, you know, we worked together on Jarman uh -huh. and I got, a, 
that's the closest I've come to really being a part of your creative process, which mm-hmm. I felt was very different from what you're telling me now. So I don't know how, what, right. you know, we can pause here for a second, figure out what you really want to talk about. Um, well, let me, let me ask you a question. So you're involved. I don't know how much creative work you're doing, um, on your own now, but you are doing a lot of creative work as part of an organization. So maybe, maybe my question is to you, how much control of your creative process do you feel you have working for an organization? And do you notice yourself giving up control or sort of maintenancing around creative control if you're being told by others what to do or if they're giving you parameters or boundaries? Hmm. Well, I don't think I've ever kept a job for very long if I didn't have uh, complete creative control or near complete. I realize in any situation, there's always someone you're accountable to. But I'm the kind of person that I, much like you, is that I have a vision and I like to have my fingers in every part of, of that process, that creative process, um, unless I think someone else can do better. Mm-hmm. Which, because of the where I live, geography and the situations I've been in, I'm rarely able to collaborate with other creatives. Usually I'm it. So um, mm-hmm. out of necessity, I've had to have my hands in every aspect and I've come to quite like it. But I think most artists artists are that way. Uh, that being said, I, I've, I take, took a job a year ago, about a week before COVID started with a corporation, a global corporation. I've never done that before. My background is theater and dance and nonprofit and documentary, things like that. And I've been surprised by just how much creative freedom I have. Mm-hmm. Because I work for the head of the organization. I do his weekly global program. It goes out to 190 countries every weekend. And in a way, I'm sort of insulated. And so I'm able to create my own program with my own uh, uh, design flourishes. And they create the the script. But beyond that, I have a lot of flexibility to do very creative things. So... That, that's been a big surprise. So I, I, I'm still not in a position where someone is making me feel as though I'm purely doing something for a paycheck. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't think I could maintain that for a long period of time. If I didn't, if I wasn't able on a weekly basis to do very creative things. So that, that sounds, it sounds like a good balance between <laughs> paycheck, so making a living, and then also... Um, creative process like it's balanced right I, I don't think I could maintain a purely kind of corporate creative process it would it would burn me out mm-hmm. you know it's curious about that because I, I often wondered when you did start working for this company um, if that if that was the case where you did have a lot of input or if it were if it was somebody else telling you what to do, because I'm like, hmm, I wonder how that must feel for you. Because I know, I know that you do have like, <laughs> you know, you play a large part in the totality of your own creative processes from 
I mean, props and everything. I are you doing photo shoots, I mean, and making props and shit. So, yeah. <laughs> I've always been a guerrilla style creative. Um, yeah, because out of necessity, you have to be creative mm-hmm. out of necessity. Uh, I don't live in New York or LA. I'm here in DC and I always feel, I often feel like I'm the only gay in the village in that sense. You know, um, mm-hmm. there aren't any other filmmakers that I know or of the couple that there are, they're, they're documentary people or they're corporate people. They don't have my inclinations and my motivations, my dreams. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to go, I want to, I want to talk about, um, since you mentioned Jarman um, and Jarman, all this maddening beauty was a, a theater project that we'd worked on together. And I want to, I want to, I want to chat about that. But before we chat about that, I want to ask you, do you remember when we first met? First met. I think I first met you at Michael Eichler's house for a party. Were they living downstairs? No, they were living in Adams Morgan, up like three, three floors. It wasn't, it wasn't Michael's party because Michael was l- with Zach, right? And they were living together, correct? Right. And was it New Year's Eve? It might no. have been. I, I don't know. All I remember is that you walked in, you were in combat boots. You were in black <laughs> combat boots. And um, you were mysterious in that, in that sort of Laura Flynn Boyle way where you... You came to the party late and left early. Black boots, yeah. I felt like that was a time in my life when I was always going to combat of some sort or another. Um, yeah, definitely was doing cocaine, most likely. Yeah, but I do remember being a party. I just don't remember if it was for a particular holiday. Um I remember actually, I'm trying to think of my, my first impression of you. I want to say almost that I found you a bit mysterious, but um, it wasn't in a sort of like, in a self facilitated mysteriousness it wasn't like a perform mysteriousness it was just a natural sort of mysteriousness and i think maybe i thought you were a bit mysterious it's because you weren't mysterious at all and i didn't quite know how to deal with that (laughs) like i always maybe i always thought that like at that particular time that everyone sort of had a hidden agenda i mean i really had a, a problem trusting people in general so maybe it was that you seem quite open. I thought you were quite open. I thought you were beautiful. And I um, thought you were a jock. Yeah, because you're very, very fit. I mean, you're still very fit now. Uh, yeah, I remember you had been Metro Weekly cover boy. And so <laughs> it was like, oh, he's, he's in a bright, shiny gay, you know, very attractive, very beautiful. Um, but I didn't, I didn't know you. I had no context. Uh, at that point, I, I had no idea of the, the troubles that you had to overcome or that you were still kind of carrying with you, um, the traumas. Um, it, it's funny that, well, it's not necessarily funny, but you know, we all come together as gay men in these social environments 
And the first thing we see is our physical selves. And that takes primacy. And so <laughs> we don't often understand all the things that we carry into those situations as gay men, you know, the traumas. Um, I, I hope that those are collectively less than they were now than they were, what, 10, 15 years ago, you know, when you and I were younger men in our 20s. Um, well, that makes me think, actually, you know, although this this is a very sort of superficial painting, this is not the whole of you, um, I did first sort of see you as the popular jock. Yeah, I was very much not that. Yeah, I thought that you were very popular. People, I mean, people constantly orbited around you. You had that sort of popular, um, attractive energy. And I'm wondering almost as if because I sort of saw you as this very popular jock, and that was something that was, I mean, I was definitely not a part of that crowd in school. I mean, particularly that crowd was a crowd that I sort of stayed away from because to go near would be to sort of open up, open up myself for disafety or to open up myself to be bullied. So I'm wondering in a way if if being friends with you at that particular time wasn't some type of corrective emotional experience because I was, I was kind of getting something very different than what had been in my past. That's interesting because while I did play sports uh, all through, you know, my, my teen years and very much enjoyed them, uh, I was a genuinely weird kid. You know, I grew up in a, I was born into a cult and uh, didn't go to high school uh, because I, I literally had a mental breakdown and, and ended up in a, uh, eventually, by the time, well, I'll, I'll take a step back. Um, you know, I, I grew up in a cult and I carried that with me all through my upbringing. Was homeschooled for much of my teen years, mostly because I had started having severe, um, mental illness as a teenager and couldn't be around other people, couldn't be in high school uh, situation. And um, when I went to college, I remember my first year, I would only wear two colors. I'd wear black and white. And I had this giant eraser head shock of hair. I was a genuinely weird kid who did not know how to socially interact with anyone around them. I mean, I was living out in a swamp you know, in a trailer house, you know, I didn't, I didn't know how to be, you know, in a, in a modern setting. I mean, as I say it, I realize it sounds bizarre, but that, that was basically it. But I don't think anyone would have seen me that way. And that's the point yeah. I, I was making is that we come together in these situations and we see each other purely on our bright, shiny surfaces as the best little boys in the world, uh, the overachievers, particularly in D.C., which, which is where your overachievers go, they congregate. Mm -hmm. But we didn't, none of us had the, the emotional intelligence to realize that we're all deeply traumatized. In our, in our own ways. And we definitely, we see things and we see other people through our own 
our own experiences. Yeah, you saw me as a jock, which I find funny. <laughs> I, I mean, I saw you as as the artist, right? You know, which is something more that I wanted to be. Um, but you also find interesting that uh, as we we got to know each other over time, that you were the only other person even remotely like me uh-huh. in this city. Even though we our, our, our creativity is completely different, um, mm-hmm. that uh, <laughs> there's just so few of us, uh, which is also kind of a, a typical gay experience, right? Like the small town gay, everyone goes to the same bar. Uh huh. Well, I sort of felt like that in the big city is that there are so few actual creatives in D.C. Yeah, I feel like there are a lot of creatives, but I noticed them less because I feel I was not necessarily trying to hang around the creatives as much. Although a lot, I have to admit, a lot of D.C., was a bit of a blur for me because I kind of like came in as the roller coaster was getting ready to kind of go over its first little bump, like it like ratcheted up to the top <laughs> and that was about ready to drop. And then most of my DC living experience was that roller coaster just going, 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 going. And that, and on along the way was a fuck ton of booze, alcohol, cocaine, and other things that were just propelling that roller coaster into quite the chaotic state. So I, my memory, my memories of DC are a little bit spotty. Um, And I don't know that I really kind of did try to, well, I don't know. I think I was quite creative in DC, but I, but I definitely wanted to party and that partying, um, was going to sort of win out the day over concentrating on any real creative practice. <laughs> I would, from my perspective, I would say that you were, you were trying to numb and you were trying to hide from whatever was chasing you. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the name of that bear was, it, you know, that whatever manifested trauma, you know, we've talked a little bit about it over the years. Some of the things you told me, um, and it was it was it was quite a fearsome thing to run from. Uh-huh. But from what I've seen from a distance, is that you found a way to to lock eyes with the bear and uh, and and have a go at it, or a bear. Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> and, and maybe uh, several bears. You know, it, it's it looks like you survived. I don't know if you've defeated the bear, but it's definitely not chasing you anymore. I think I've befriended the bear. Okay. I think I think I've brought the bear into my inner circle a bit. And I think that the bear if you want to get if you want to go into psychological jargon is a bit like that it's that shadow material. You know, it's that shadow aspect of self. Um and I've definitely, I've definitely over the past couple of years really sort of embraced that shadow aspect. And I know it's there and I know it's waiting in the wings to kind of be like, hey, you know, let me come out and play. <laughs> but, but holding it close and embracing, embracing those aspects has been a huge help for me. Um, yeah. 
Hi, it's me. Sorry to break up the conversation, but I'm stepping into the sponsorship space, wink wink, for a moment to tell you about something extra special, Patreon. Patreon is a membership-based platform for content creators to earn a monthly income while providing rewards and perks to you, our subscribers. I Miss You has two recurring monthly membership levels starting at $5. So what do I get for that $5, you say? Well, my undying gratitude for one. Isn't that enough? No, it's not enough, come on. You'll get bonus content every other week, including videos by me, Patreon-only posts and updates, and access to the members-only Facebook group, where you can connect with me and other listeners, share stories of reconnecting, oh, and join in on a once-a-month Facebook live chat, where you can ask me questions about the show. Your monthly sponsorship supports producing the podcast, including website and other platform fees. Uh, They really add up. Recording studio rental, editing equipment, and let's be honest, probably some treats for my dog, Najdia. She's hungry. Like all the time. Visit imissyoupodcast.com for a link to our Patreon page. And if all that business isn't of interest to you, but you would still like to support the show, you can make a one-time donation through our website as well. Oh, and another way to show support is by sharing our podcast with your dog. Kidding. Sharing this podcast with everyone you know. Seriously, everyone. Now, back to the episode. But I want to... I don't know that you want to talk about this, and if you don't want to talk about it, you can tell me to like move on. But you know, I I remember you t- you have told this to me before um, that you were born into a cult. You didn't grow up. You grow up in a grew up in a cult. I can't remember exactly the language that you used. Born into it and uh, came out of it at sixteen. At sixteen, yeah, that's quite that's quite some time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you like being in a cult? See, I only like, I feel like what I know about cults is that, um, for lack of a better expression, is that they brainwash you in some way. Um, I, well, I think people want to be brainwashed. I think that they prey on on people who are in desperate situations, mm-hmm. uneducated people who are desperate. I don't think anyone leaves reality because reality is so great. I think they leave reality because they're desperate to. And you can make your you know your MAGA Trump analogy if you want. I mean, a cult is a cult, but when you have any level of, uh, say, comorbidities, um, poverty, um, loss of self-esteem, addiction, any number of weaknesses, and some charismatic force tells you that you're actually special. And that they have, they have answers to all of these existential questions. And they give you a community that you didn't have prior. A place where you feel accepted, where you feel like you're a part of something that gives your life meaning and direction. That is a very powerful cocktail. 
and and also a cult is is really nothing more than a religion that hasn't achieved mainstream acceptance. Mm-hmm. You know, we would call Mormons crazy for a long time, but now they're fairly accepted as a religion. We still kind of rag on Scientology, but you know, there's still a chance that they can uh, they can pull it together and become a, a a mainstream religion probably not yeah like i'm wondering now actually what defines a cult like is is catholicism a cult i mean are any of these sure, I mean, religions cults any cult ideology cult like any ideology that is built on unsustainable um let's how let me restate that any ideology that's based on unsustainable beliefs is, is a cult. I mean, yeah, there's not much difference between Mormonism and Catholicism and Protestantism, uh, except uh, different levels of crazy. I mean, you can't substantiate mm-hmm. a lot of these wacky things they believe, but as a group, we decide we're going to go ahead and believe them. And it gives our life meaning and purpose and keeps us from killing each other or killing each other. Well, not historically. I mean, historically, I feel like the the Christians have wiped out a large and vast populations of people, you know, colonized the world. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, but we're all looking for answers to those same questions. Who am I? Where am I from? Where am I going? What's my purpose? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm... I guess I, I shouldn't really paint, you know, all of Christianity in bad light because faith in whatever form it wants to show up in really does provide people comfort. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, well, just like our addictions, you know, sex, cigarettes, drugs, video games, food, they're great. The numbing agents are great until they're not great anymore. You know, they work until they don't. Uh, yeah, I think religion is one of the the more effective numbing agents uh, for people who don't want to deal with their own pain, who don't want to actively deal with hard questions and and get real answers to them. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, I guess God's just a lot more effective than than meth. Mm-hmm. But these are just my personal opinions, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, I guess I guess one is a little bit momentary, and one is not as momentary. Well, not really. I mean, yeah, you go to church on a Sunday, and it gets you all riled up. But then, yeah, that's true. I mean, why is it always the crazy people on the streets who think they're Jesus or are preaching to you? You know, it's like you've got to keep yourself in that state, that worked up state. Um, it's not different than than being on a on an ecstasy. Uh, you know, an ecstasy trip. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're, we're one year apart in age, but we were also, our, we share, you're Pisces, right? So our birthday is what, six days apart? Because I'm, I'm March 15th and you're March 9th? March 8th. March 8th, shit, one day. Um... Yeah, I was I was chatting with a friend of mine who was re-watching the Greg Araki 
um, trilogy. Do you remember those films like the Gregor Rackett trilogy, Doom Generation, Nowhere, Totally Fucked Up? I think those are the three. Um, and the one, I guess one of the movies, Nowhere, or maybe it's Doom Generation, came out in 1993. And I was like, oh shit, I remember seeing this because I was 16 at the time. And my friend couldn't believe that I was Gen X. And I'm like, yeah, definitely Gen X. Like we're we're products of being brought up in the in the culture of the 80s and 90s. I'm still not sure what that means. I meet a lot of people who are in their mid 20s and they're in awe of the 90s. And <laughs> well, yeah, you know, it all it, we we cycle back, we recycle a lot. Yeah, I mean, I lived through the 90s. I don't remember it being all that great. I mean, the art was pretty shitty. It was. Uh, but it was yeah. fun, I guess, you know, nothing was really happening in the world. There was peace. Um, the music was shitty, but it was fun. The art was shitty, but it was fun. The movies, you know. I was I was very big into Tori Amos in the 90s. Like I was a Tori Amos head. Right. Yeah, there was a lot of really intense emotional <laughs> uh, artists like the standing back then was just like blood cult kind of adoration for these artists. I don't know if they still do that with this younger generation. I'm, I don't know. Oh yeah. Oh, totally. Like, and, and, and they're that way with some of these artists that are like on TikTok who I've never heard of before. I'm like, who are they now? Lady Gaga. Well, Lady Gaga has been around for, a, a, well, I guess it's a while now. I mean, it shouldn't seem like it's a while, but Lady Gaga's been around for a while because I remember that that first album was out, what, in like 2008 or nine? It's been a while. But I feel like Lady Gaga definitely is, has a, you know, a pretty intense following. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm not say, I, I don't want to say that I'm afraid, but I'm starting to realize that as I approach 45, that I'm losing sight of what young people are I'm calling them young people, what, what younger <laughs> people are doing, you know, in terms of the, like the, the Z geeks, you know, um, how are they getting their information? How are they processing things? <laughs> how are they getting their information? Well, we used to read the newspapers. <laughs> well, you know, because I feel like art will always keep me young just because of my profession. I, you probably feel the same, but I am mm -hmm. definitely disconnected from this latest generation. I don't know what's going on there, but I don't want to reflexively piss on them. Like people do every generation. I always want to be on the side of the kids, no matter what. Yeah. Well, there are those, you know what though? I feel like there's a lot of of those generation. A lot of that generation is like very activist. Like if you think about David Hogg, you know, who survived the Parkland shooting. Um, people like Greta Greta Thunberg. Yeah. Like these young people are like making shit happen. Like some with no no fear whatsoever. Well, this summer I've been following on Instagram. All everyone is an activist now. You know, all of the, my friends are in their twenties and an actress or a TikTok star. Well, activist. Oh, activist! I thought you said everyone is an is an actor or actress now. No, no. <laughs> Actually, I feel like that's taken a step back in terms of cultural primacy. That to be an activist now, to be opinionated about what's going on in the world, 
is so yeah. much more important to this generation. And I've been trying to stay quiet. I don't, I try not to respond to the things that I see. I'm just trying to be educated by them because I think it's fascinating to watch this young generation. They're working out their ethical system in real time. They're discussing amongst themselves what do they believe in, uh, what's okay and what isn't. And just listening to them about how that they are interpreting all of this stuff going on and being inspired by it, in some cases being turned off by it. Um, but I don't want to be reflexively turned off by it. But I'm, I'm just trying to listen and, and learn who they are. I, so far, I'm really impressed. Mm -hmm. But I do feel... They also scare me, though, at times because I see a lot of commonality between the ultra left and the ultra right. And the young know, people? Yeah, and, and just this totalitarian mm. kind of mentality that it's our way or you will be, you will be destroyed, you will be canceled. Called out, yeah. What's important for you right now? Money. Mm. I've never been able to say that in my life. It's, but right now, as I'm in my going, reaching into my mid 40s, I'd say money is very important to me because I've been the proverbial starving artist for most of my life. Mm -hmm. And at the same time that I was living that lifestyle, I was also unhealthy and dealing with a lot of unprocessed traumas. And now that I have money and I'm doing very well, I've it has amazed me the kind of objectivity it has given me, the distance it has placed between the man I am now and the feral wild creature mm -hmm. that's been running these streets for the last 20 odd years. Really since the day I was, you know, I had sentience. Um, I've always <laughs> felt like I have been, I've always felt like I was trying to stay one step ahead just to survive. And having that distance now, the security to take a breath, step back, look objectively at my, my choices, uh, it has made me realize that most people don't live this way, mm -hmm. that they were living as I've lived, and how harrowing that is, and not even realizing it because it's just, it's just what you do. It's what you do to survive. Is it the is it the money or is it the comfort and flexibility? Well, they're the same thing. The money for me uh, gives me comfort, gives me flexibility, gives me a, the ability to put some distance between me and a feral thing who's just trying to stay alive. And it, it's also increased my empathy because now when I see people on TV that politically I would say you know you're you're doing and saying monstrous things, I can look at them now more fully. I believe I've always been able to see this, but more so now that, okay, you're working to the bone every day, whatever backbone, whatever backbone job that you're working. People I know, people in my family. And you have a limited amount of time to have any comfort. Maybe it's a, you crack open a beer and watch some football and make some barbecue uh, that might be the extent of it. The rest of the time you're just working and 
trying your best to survive for you and your family. You know, there isn't a lot of room there to step back and say, well, let me really think about my life. Let me reflect on that. Um, Let me educate myself and understand all of the different issues that impact my life and understand them in a deeper way. You know, real, real growth. I think there is a, most of our time is just spent trying to survive, man. Um, But money allows you a little bit of distance to evolve. Mm -hmm. So that's what I mean when I say money. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm forever curious um, about living in a country (laughs) that has things like healthcare, universal healthcare, and like basic um, living wages for everyone. Like what that's like. (laughs) I mean, you know, nothing, no society really doesn't come without its problems, you know, and how those problems surface just varies, yeah. I saw an article recently stating that half of the country or something like that, if they had a $400 bill, they wouldn't be able to cover it. It would put them in crisis. $400. Do you mean um, $400 because someone would not know what to do with it or they've been like given the option of this? They wouldn't be able to pay it. Oh, it wouldn't go very far. That's what you're saying? Well, they wouldn't be able to pay it. They wouldn't have the $400. That would not be in the budget on a monthly basis. Right. It's, this country is living hand to mouth. So many of us are living wild. What I thought you said, um, which was I was a little confused, is I, for some reason, I thought you said um, that if someone in this country were given $400, they would then be faced with a dilemma because they, they have $400 now, but and that, that's $400 more than they had, but now the dilemma is that $400 today would not go very far. So you're faced with the sort of dilemma of how to spend it. No, 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 that's not it at all. I mean, it, it's just not, a, people are living on, on, a, on the razor's edge. Mm-hmm. You know, we are debating nationally about $600, $1,400. I'm like, are yeah, you fucking yeah. kidding me? Do you have any idea how people are living out there? It blows my mind. It's like these politicians just are completely clueless about their own constituents. Well, I know you went through this huge um, life change moving from your home where you live with other people to a home now where you live by yourself. How are you adjusting to that? It's weird. Uh, 13 years in one space. And then like that to move from there into this beautiful house that i'm in now which is really kind of like a creative ashram i mean people were coming and going and like all of these wily characters were coming and going and that that i mean that if those walls could talk <laughs> creatives my last two roommates were a drag queen and an artist mm-hmm. and um those spaces those sort of group house spaces where artists could live cohabit it's just I think we were the last one, if not the last yeah. one, one of the last. Um, I think t- 
that is a it was a relic of a bygone area. It's amazing that we were able to hold on that long. And you were really living in um, a hot spot in DC. It was consi- it was Logan Circle, right? Or were you considered Shaw, the Shaw neighborhood? Yeah, it was Shaw. Well, right. when I moved in, it was one of the scariest neighborhoods in, in town. People wouldn't even come to visit. Mm-hmm. And uh, my front yard was a dirt patch, and we had a long plank of wood that went from the street to the stairs. And we'd call it walking the plank. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, and, and the house, we'd just call it the pirate ship, uh, Castle Grayskull. Uh-huh. And we never really lost that title. And over 13 years, the neighborhood turned from being a scary place to the most coveted in the city, one of the most coveted. Yeah. I mean, I've never seen gentrification quite like I've seen it in Washington, D.C. Yeah, I had a front row seat to it. The Washington Post came, sent a photographer, and they did a story on a few people uh, in Shaw. I was one oh. of them about what they've seen over these this decade, the rapid yeah. gentrification of the area. Because I did something quite, I did something something similar to you. Well, I lived in a in an area that was just rapidly gentrified, but um, so down in southeast on the waterfront. So when I moved in there, um, basically that whole area was just demolished. There was nothing there. Um, now you can't like. I, I mean, it was once they started building back up, the first thing that they did was to kind of install these public um, parks down there. But now they've built so many super expensive um, fishbowl type condos, you can't even see any green anymore. You can't see, I used to be able to see right to the water because I was a, two blocks away from it. I could see right to the water from where I lived. And now you can't even do that anymore. I mean, it just feels so claustrophobic and overwhelming. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's where all the Trump people stayed, all those new high-rises, all that new housing. Oh, when they came God. to town, they just sort of <laughs> cohabitated together in that little patch of land. Right. Do you see yourself staying in Washington, D.C.? Man, I've been having for this conversation for 20 years Right. Every time I, I feel like I'm about to go, something happens in my life that pulls me back and makes me uh, want to give it another go. Mm-hmm. So you you don't see yourself leaving Washington, D.C. anytime soon? Well, I feel like I've become, I mean, you can't be, I'm a part of the substance of D.C. You know, I've been here long enough where I've, I've mixed you know, I've mixed my blood with, with the cities. So it'd be very mm-hmm. hard to leave after 20 years. And uh, everybody knows me. You know, I, in ways I feel like an institution, you know, even though when I go out, I, I, I recognize fewer and fewer people. Yeah. But for the people who've been here a long time, you know, I mean, 20 years in one spot and having the career that I've had where, you know, my camera gets me into a lot of different strata a lot of different uh, cultural groups that otherwise I wouldn't. So I, I just know a lot of people. And I feel, I feel ingrained here in this city. And I'm also just stubborn. I have a feeling like for what I want to do and what I've been working toward, if I went to New York or LA, I'd just get, I'd get, there'd be more opportunities, sure. But I feel like I would be consumed by those cities. Where in mm-hmm. DC, I have a network. I have... 
the benefit of being the only one here who does what I do. And that's a curse, but it can also be a blessing. And so I feel like with the nature of uh, visual-based content, you know, uh, either whether it's for the, for the web or for uh, the screen or Netflix, um, that you can do that almost anywhere now. Like we're, we're, we're here. Um, and I have the ability to sort of create this content now where I've been building up over so long, but now I'm here. And so the, the, the main issue for me now is not do I leave, but what am I going to do? I'm ready. There's nothing standing in my way. Yeah, I wanted to um, I wanted to go back since you started talking about um, video work to circle back to Jarman, which was this thing we worked on together, this um, theater project. And did I tell you that I went so we shot this thing in Uline Arena, which was I guess it was a parking lot when we shot it there, but it. Or maybe it was a roller skating rink at one point. I don't know. Which is ginormous in enclosed Uline Arena had been sort of abandoned. I guess they did use it for a parking lot. Um, I maybe heard it was the first place the Beatles performed. It was the first the place States. the Beatles performed in the U.S. Uh, <laughs> it was a location of a lot of great concerts and sporting events and notable uh, moments in D.C. history. And then eventually it went into to disuse and became a parking lot by the time we came into the space. Right. So we ended up being the last creative project in that, oh. in that space, which was kind and of, now, it, now it's an REI. And I, you know, I went into that REI and I showed the person working behind the reg- register, um, a photo of, of our work in there. And they were just absolutely stunned because it was a completely empty sort of, place and they couldn't believe it that i was like oh so you're you're actually right here where we shot this little thing but it was we i mean that yeah that project was a lot it it was you know this theater just for people listening um it was a theater project based or inspired by um iconic british filmmaker derek jarman um and we wanted to, so there was a live theater component to it, but then there was also a media component to it where we um, projected video and video was a, played a big component in it. And we wanted to shoot the scene. So we staged basically, what would you say? It was like a kind of a mini rave in the United Arena where we <laughs> had like a holy, I mean, I felt like there were so many things happening in there. We somehow managed to get what like, would you say like 40 queens to come? And then we plied them with like mimosas, (laughs) got them drunk and we had them dress up in this sort of like, I forget what the thing was like apocalypse, apocalypse chic or some type of like, I don't know. But then we like threw holy powder on them. We, we had them dance and sort of rave around. We had music on it. We were, yeah, it was a lot. (laughs) vibe that I've always wanted to create here in DC. It was an end of the world party. We told everyone to dress. Oh, so- that's right. End of the world. That was the, that was the theme. And well, <laughs> I requested that everyone dress as if they're, they are dressing for a rave right at the end of the world. Like this is the last right. big crazy bash. And we, yeah, we had between 50 and 70 people show up. We oh, had, right, yeah. we had smoke machines. We had the holy powder. We had, yeah, we had this guy come and put up uh, his his speakers and his DJ equipment. It became a party. 
Yeah, that's right. During the day, we did it during the daytime. People still come up to me and say, you know, that was one of the most amazing things I've ever done in DC, years uh, later. How cool. Yeah. And it's tough because now we've lost so many spaces. Uh, where, would I, where would you even throw a party like that anymore in DC? Yeah. You know, I was thinking about you the other day um, because if you want to talk about spaces here, Denver is sitting on so much warehouse space, like just entire areas of empty warehouses. Um, now there is there is development happening. Some of these warehouses are, of course, turning into, into loft apartments or some type of you know condos or whatever. But it feels like DC did back then when there was that sort of abundance of like empty warehouse spaces. Um, and I'm just, I'm so curious that I kind of like a little bit of me wants to sort of like ask around and see if I can get in one of these spaces and make a little, a little something happen. Yeah. Before we go, I want to ask you, um, what's something that you're looking forward to in 2021? These are definitely the kind of questions that I, I feel like I've been, I've had so much happen to me this year that it's just been about maintaining a Zen state of mind. You know, I, I lost my, um, my roommate to suicide this year. I was very close with him. I lost my brother, uh, my step father died last weekend. My mother, I had to put her in a, in the back of an ambulance, uh, right at Christmas. I thought I was going to lose her. And she spent nine days in the hospital. My sister had a stroke and two other brothers of mine had some serious health problems this year. And I thought I was going to lose them. So it's just been a lot of loss. And then the loss of Castle Grayskull. Um, Well, at the same time, having to deal with all these new things, this incredible new job, a new house, a new boyfriend, I haven't had a boyfriend in over, mm -hmm. a, in over a decade. And I've been, I've been, uh, you know, with this guy for a year now and still trying to figure out what that means and, um, how to negotiate that. But, you know, where I've landed on that is that it, it makes the days move easy. And, uh, I guess what I'm saying is that, it's just been too much. So I'm just trying to be as much in the present moment as I can with the realization that I can't change the past and I can't control the future. All I can do is deal with today. And what can I deal with today that can, that can leave me in a place of peace? In terms of what happens in 2021, I just have not had the energy to project beyond this moment. Mm -hmm. I wish I had a better answer. I think that's a pretty solid answer. Well, thank you. Do you have any questions, feedback, or want to share a story about reconnecting? You can drop me an email at I miss you podcast at gmail.com. Find and follow the show on Instagram at I miss you podcast. I miss you is hosted, edited, and produced by me with lots of help from the universe. 
This episode was recorded at House of Pod in Denver, Colorado. Our podcast graphic was designed by Ian Slarsky. New episodes are released weekly on Wednesdays. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher, and show some love with lots of stars. It really helps. If you would like to support I Miss You, as well as get additional content and access to our members-only Facebook group, where you can connect and share with other listeners, consider subscribing to Patreon. You can find a link to Patreon in our Instagram bio, or at our website at imissyoupodcast.com. And finally, reach out, connect, and spread the love by telling all of your friends about our show. Till next time, new friend.